Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about why I love to worship, whether I'm in a church or not. Heads up, this is going to be a religiously oriented, inappropriate conversation, as will next week's, as these are coming out on either side of Holy Week in the year 2012. And if I'm going to give a religiously oriented show, I might as well start with scripture from Psalm 150, the entire psalm, which thankfully is pretty short. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his surpassing greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with clanging cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is a description of worship. And yet, to tell a personal story right up front and kind of get us going on this topic of worship and what it is, I currently attend a church where there's a great deal of conflict over what it means to worship. This might seem like an odd thing for a church to have uncertainty over, particularly for those who don't have any uh, involvement with a church. You might think that this particular thing, this worship thing, would be the bread and butter, would be a settled matter. And I'm not speaking about this today to complain about the fact that worship in the church I attend is an unsettled matter. I'm here to complain about people who think that it ought to be. And that's really my beef because there's been discussion going on for two, three, four years now, probably longer about the way in which we worship, because there are people like me who believe that if you're worshiping genuinely, if it's real, it is going to be unpredictable. It is going to be something that cannot necessarily be planned. There can be, uh, there can be an idea of what's going to happen. There can be an order of worship. I'll get to that idea here in just a minute. But for it to be planned, for it to be ritualistically regimented, means that it isn't worship in the way that I define the term. It's a very human behavior and a very human-oriented behavior. In other words, the Holy Spirit, from a Christian perspective, gets removed from the picture that way. I quoted Psalm 150 because there was a fairly heated discussion a few months ago about whether it was appropriate for there to be a drum set in the sanctuary. It was one thing for it to be in another part of the church, and what we've, uh, in the churches I've always attended, called the Fellowship Hall. Even that was perhaps a bit controversial, that there were drums and cymbals in the building at all. But for that drum set to leave the basement or the Sunday school room part of the church and move up into the sanctuary was more than some people could handle. And I'm told, I don't know whether I believe it or not, but I'm told that there might be people who have left the church altogether over the issue. People who maybe have not found another church home. In other words, people who've elected not to worship at all 
in a conflict over the way that we worship. Now, one of the people who had this issue is, uh, you know, one of the eldest members of the congregation. And I say eldest, both in the sense of age, but also in the sense of, of uh, years of service, tenure, esteem, uh, all that. So it's not a negative thing to be among the oldest people in the church if you're an elder in the way you handle it. But in this sense, the conversation was one that I found to be very disturbing because the pastor called to her attention that worship is perfectly appropriate with things like uh, flute and lyre and trumpet and drums and dancing and shared with her this Psalm 150, which I just read. And rather than accept the principle that according to King David in the Old Testament, and uh, nothing in the New Testament contradicts this idea that music has a place in the church. Well, this was a this is a choir director, an ex-retired now choir director, somebody who loves music, you know, with a great deal of passion. But from her perspective, music in a church should be played with organ, possibly piano, and any other musical instrument that gets introduced had better be light, delicate, acoustic, and soft. Uh, violin is one thing, electric violin out of the question. And she essentially denied that there was any validity to scripture. It was among the most agnostic things I've ever heard a 40 plus year member of the church say before. She didn't really care what that book said. She knew what was proper and improper in God's house and drums were not proper. Well, I would find that even more disturbing than I do. And don't get me wrong, I find that disturbing. Except for the fact that when you look out to religions of the world in general, and even across much of Christianity, and even if you leave Catholicism out, and much of Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy out, you're still finding a great deal of ritual in the way that Christians worship. So one of the hallmarks of Islam is that there's a method there's a method to the madness. There's an approach. There's a right way to worship. And uh, it refers, uh, Wikipedia describes Islam as having a ritualistic devotion, which is ordained by and pleasing to Allah. Uh, it's a unique role in Islam, and it's not included in the five pillars of Islam, but it's practiced as in the form of ritual prayer five times daily. Worship's done at specific times and in specific ways. And it's not that I believe that your average Muslim is worshiping the ritual, but I do believe that there is a, uh, a common notion that the ritual can be done wrong and should not be done wrong. My favorite joke, in fact, from the film Four Lions was a joke about uh, facing east at prayer time and what it would mean if you were actually so far to the east that Mecca was to the west of you. Um, that, sort of, that sort of notion, right? There's a right way to do it at a wrong way to do it. A lot of Buddhism, talking about concepts of right, right approach, right manner, right doctrine, right attitude, all of those uh, right terms, that adjective right, meaning correct, implies that there is a methodology. Now, here's the irony. I mean, we all know that there's a ton of ritual in Catholicism and a widespread belief among some Catholics that to perform that ritual wrong could be life-threatening that the ritual is tantamount in some corners of Roman Catholicism. But even in the Protestant movement, the, the church that I go to is a United Methodist church. Now, as the word Methodist might imply, 
there is a method to the madness. And you don't have to crack open even a copy of the hymnal to find what uh, you know either Charles or John Wesley would have set out as the pattern for proper worship, or at least a basic pattern for worship. Uh, it's described in the hymnal I have as being entrance, followed by proclamation and response, followed by thanksgiving and communion, and then ascending forth. That's a uh, basic pattern. Uh, there's a suggested pattern of Sunday worship as well. Entrance, greeting and hymn, opening prayers and praise, proclamation and response, including a prayer of illumination, scripture, sermon, a response to the word, the raising of concerns and prayers, a time of confession, pardon, and peace, along with offering. That would be followed then by Thanksgiving, potentially with communion or without communion. Uh, United Methodists don't do communion every time they worship, at least generally speaking. Followed by ascending forth, which can be with or without a hymn or a uh, prayer or benediction of some sort. There are also other you know, orders of worship for the taking of communion, for delivering a baptism ceremony, for the times of funeral. And again, the first probably you know, 50 pages of the hymnal that I have are all about setting aside these methods, this Methodist notion. But the thing that I would say is that although Methodism sprang from this tradition, and it's not hard to find a United Methodist Church that has a bulletin that reads pretty much along these lines, along this pattern, there's been a movement uh, through much of my lifetime, this really isn't that new of a movement to break worship out of the confines of ritual and to allow the creativity of God himself to influence the way in which people gather together and praise the Lord. Now, the topics are all there. The elements should all be in place. There theoretically should be uh, a greeting of some sort. There should be some combination of song and or dance, maybe even drama. There should be a time of shared collective prayer, perhaps silent prayer, raising of joys and concerns, reading of scripture, especially if that uh, reading of scripture is going to tie into some sort of sermon or homily or gospel message, some sort of speaker or even a witness, someone just standing up to share their experience. And witness is such an easy, easy concept because anybody who's a believer, anybody who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is probably capable of answering one simple question. And maybe if you had to answer this question every week, you wouldn't be able to deliver. You wouldn't be able, I mean, the pastor's job uh, is not an easy one, in my opinion. You take hospital visitation, visitation to the, the infirm and the elderly, people who want counseling, whether that be premarital counseling or post-marital counseling, which in some ways is, is every bit as serious, if not more serious, you take away all those things, and then the administrative nature of the, of the life of the church, meetings, so forth, you still have that notion of, of being able to deliver a message. And I, I'm not a big fan of the idea that that has to be the pastor every Sunday, because I firmly believe that anybody who is in the church, who has a healthy, vibrant faith, and who isn't necessarily called upon, again, on a routine basis, who has had time between moments when they have shared their witness. All witnessing is, is answering a very simple question. What has the Lord done in your life? What's God been up to? What have you seen? 
What have you experienced? What's happening in your spiritual life? If you can answer that question, even just two or three times a year, then you can be, you know, one of the rotating 50 some odd people or 30 some odd people who contribute on a regular basis to what happens in worship. It doesn't have to be long. I mean, no one said that a sermon needs to be between 10 and 20 minutes long every single Sunday and start at a certain time on the clock or a certain sequence in the worship service. This is exactly the kind of thing that I'm trying to, uh, inside my church and inside my life, break away from. Because it assumes a couple of things that as believers, as Christians, we probably should not presume. We should not presume that God will meet us in the past. Because that's what, that's what a ritual is. That's what devotion to the method is all about. It's saying, you know what? I read somewhere in the book of Acts that this is how the early church did it. And I am committed to doing it exactly the way the early church did it. I have an almost superstitious fear of what would happen if I worshiped in any other way than that. Or oftentimes it's much more nefarious than something that you might consider to be a primitivist concept or an originalist concept. For a lot of people, it's just, this is the way I remember it when I was a kid, or this is the way we've always done it around here. And my answer to that is usually, I think it's about time we stop doing it the way we've always done it and start doing it the way God wants it done. Because if you believe in a Holy Spirit, you believe in a creative being, you know, for all the um, young earth, young earth creationist type politically active Christians who were so obsessed with the creation that they believe God did 8,000 years ago, who somehow don't seem to have room in their worldview for anything that God might have done 17 trillion years ago. My God's older than their God. My God is more creative than their God because he has had much more time to create. He's been active across all times and places, both in an infinite past and in an infinite future. Um, and their God you know, started something a few thousand years ago and is doing it right now. And he's going to be done soon. He has a uh, short lifespan, you might say. But no, to me, God's creative. He's been creating. He's still creating now. And I don't think for one minute that he wants to be worshipped in the exact same way every single time. Psalm 150 refers to a variety of musical instruments. And yet I have worshipped with people who would probably come along and say that every single ceremony has to have every one of those instruments. And those instruments have to be played in the exact sequence that David refers to them in Psalm 150. And that any Sunday service that doesn't include dance is a blasphemy because Psalm 150 talks about dance. So you always have to dance. For a creative being, for a being as creative as the Holy Spirit, there is no always, and there probably is no never either. It's about coming in and saying, Lord, take this where you want it to go. I think one of the most frightening things that I've mentioned to members of my church in the last two, three months is asking them to imagine um, having a Sunday worship service with no bulletin. This is not a new idea. I've mentioned in the past that from time to time, it's a very good and healthy thing to come into a moment of worship, to come into a worship service without an order of worship declared at all, possibly without an order of worship planned at all. And I've done this referring not just to the New Testament, but also 
to the Old Testament, to the moments where Ezra and Nehemiah were you know, bringing people back into the temple courts and inspiring them to rebuild the temple. And um, those gatherings of people, those very worshipful gatherings where decisions were being made about whether, when, and how to rebuild the temple, it didn't include passing out a bunch of pieces of paper or, you know, scrolls, uh, telling everybody exactly what was going to be said when and who was going to speak first and who was going to speak second. And if there was going to be a prayer, maybe print all the words out in advance so everyone can pray in unison is much more spontaneous than that. The way I've heard it described is refers back to the book of Exodus and Moses's experience that when Moses asks God for a name that he can give both to the Hebrew people in captivity and to Pharaoh to explain to Pharaoh how crucial it is that he um, let the Hebrew people go. God doesn't tell Moses his name was I was, and he doesn't tell Moses his name was I will be. He says, use the name I am, an eternal present, an always present being. Well, if you really believe in a necessary being, if you're a Christian and you get it, and you, you're not going to comprehend the ideas of omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence, but you may apprehend them. And if you do, why in the world would you assume that for God the most important thing is that you always do everything in exactly the same way? This isn't a conjuring. It's not a seance. It's, it's worship. It's living. It's breathing. It's now. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that is spontaneous is true. I've got, personally strong opinions about what I prefer in worship. But I don't go into a worship experience presuming that it's all about me. To be truly worshipful, the attitude and the focus needs to be about God, and secondarily, needs to be about the person next to you getting what they need in terms of being equipped, being supported, and being moved. And if if I were to go to worship every Sunday for the next 52 weeks— and every time I was at church, everyone around me was completely equipped and edified. And I was, you know, all right. Not necessarily feeling that I was personally touched or reached or spoken to. It would still be a wonderful situation to know that I was a part of a worship experience that was having that kind of impact on people that I have come to know and care about. Ritual kills all that. With ritual... It becomes less about what's happening in the pew next to you, behind you, in front of you. It becomes less about what's going on in your personal relationship with God and becomes more about executing the steps as perfectly as possible. I mentioned a while back uh, reading from Oz Ganes and his book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, When Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. And the very last passage in that book being a story uh, related essentially through Golda Meir, um, so said in Israel, where around the time where uh, you know major decisions were going to be made and people had to be moved into deciding a course of action, somebody got up and before the Knesset gave a powerful, impactful, moving, intelligent speech with a call to action. And the person sitting next to Meir asked her what she thought of it. Wasn't it impressive? Wasn't she moved? And her answer was, well, if only he could have stuttered just once, just stammered, lost his place for a moment, something to make it real. I don't know that in a lot of churches, the worship that we discuss is going to be real, 
if it's executed as perfectly as people seem to want it to be, if it's always the same in some way this week and next week and the week after that, and all of it looks like the week before and the week before and the week before, maybe not in terms of the specific content, maybe a different hymns being sung, maybe a different prayer is being led. Um, certainly you would expect different scripture reading following along a course of unique and different sermons every time. But essentially, if it follows the same pattern that I described a few moments ago, even in a United Methodist Church, if it follows the same pattern, your experience is going to be the same thing over and over and over again. You're not being right with God unless you're being real with God. And a lot of this ritual is about people trying to do everything in their power to prevent that moment of being real with God. That no matter what, I've come to this moment on a Sunday morning or a Saturday afternoon or whenever the worship service is with the number one goal of presenting a fake version of me to what I'm calling a real God, but I'm treating like a fake God because the most important thing is this fake version of me living inside this very regimented ritual, almost very scripted ritual. I personally don't have a lot of room in my heart to blame people who've left the church or people who've rejected the church, never even given it a try, if what they've encountered, if what they've been presented as worship is this. Because at its worst, it's a bad high school play. It's a bad middle school play at its worst. And you only go to those things if you have a personal relationship with one of the kids on the stage. But what if you don't have a personal relationship with anybody involved in the situation, including the object of worship? God himself, God herself, if you don't have a relationship with the deity, all you've got is performance. And I don't care how good the performance is, at the end of the day, it's false. You're not being right with God, unless you're being real with God. And being right with God means that any church in America today that doesn't have a homosexual church member or a bisexual church member well, they're, they're not doing it right. They should be reaching people who want to come genuinely into relationship with God himself. And if you've excluded a wide variety of people from ever entering in the door, well, then you already know that whatever happens inside is going to have an air of falseness to it. It can't be genuine. It can't be reaching a hurting, sinful world if most of the people who are hurting the most, the people who are disenfranchised, or the people who are dealing with who they are, whether that be a sinful thing or not, if they're not welcome, what have you got? I remember talking with a friend of mine a while back, as I was personally, you know, kind of expanding my horizons, interacting with people on the internet, and kind of connecting with some political ideas that I had left on the shelf since the middle part of college. There was a moment in college when I began to focus a little bit inwardly and say, you know what, I've had some experiences in high school, I've had some experiences in the early part of college, and now here at the end of college, I'm having another experience which is going to command my attention. And I've spoken about that in recent episodes uh, dealing with Revelation Weekend, and before that, the week before that, um, just things that have made me feel like there's something going on in me spiritually that I need to deal with. And among the ideas, the sort of liberal political ideas that you deal with in one degree or another in the college experience, you either deal with it by rejecting them or you deal with them by entertaining them, 
by trying them on, so to speak. And of course, one of the biggest mistakes that most uh, of what we call evangelical Christianity makes is this assumption that if you've tried on an idea, that means you've somehow accepted it and that acceptance is bad. Well, you know, as we talked about before, I think it was an Aristotle quote that you can certainly try on an idea without adopting that idea. And one of the things that I toyed with for a while was, you know, where do we stand as a nation with drug policy? Because I'm one of those people. I've uh, lived my life without using an illegal drug. It never really interested me. But at the same time, I always moved very freely among the circles of people who did or who had at times used illegal drugs. I didn't feel like I was, you know, some sort of caped crusader destined to stamp it all out. I wasn't narc man or anything like that. But I did have a fairly good understanding of some of the things that are involved in drug use, drug abuse, drug culture in general, just because of the way I'd live my life, uh, making friends, interacting with people and being curious enough to try to learn. So I get online, start meeting some new people. And some of the people that I meet are from other countries where policies there are very different than they are in the United States, where the mentality in some parts, at least of some of those countries is about harm reduction. Now, I've spoken very briefly about harm reduction before in the just say no sort of drug episode early on. And my, my thoughts are there are the same, that I think that it's very important that we don't set up a society where we round up and imprison everybody who behaves in a way we disagree with, that we have a prison overcrowding problem in the United States. We have a clear racial divide reflected in our prison community in the just the ratio the breakdown of who's in prison. And those mistakes in some ways were exacerbated in the 1980s by the sort of uh, zero tolerance policy toward drugs approach. In other words, if somebody were to um, show up at a uh, police station, for want of a better word, and say, hey, I'm, I'm having a problem, I need help, I'm dealing with serious symptoms, I've got withdrawal problems, the last thing in the world anybody in the United States of America would do, or at least anybody who's politically conservative, is send that person to a clinic so that they can get help, perhaps even drug therapy or maybe even the drugs themselves. But this harm reduction model that you see in places in Europe is about making sure that dirty needles are not on the street, that people who are engaging in some of the most dangerous forms of drug abuse at least have clean supplies, clean needles, proper understanding of how to do things so they don't harm themselves that there may come a time and a place when this individual will stop using and abusing drugs. But until then, we want to keep the person alive. Well, I mentioned this in the context of worship once and said, basically, I'm back to, for the first time in years, thinking about this harm reduction model and how it would apply to where we are in the United States and what it means to us. And I've decided as a Christian that I'm not at all inclined to reject it. I was in the minority. And I think I've told this story before, that there were people who felt pretty strongly that, no, you know, we've got to have a standard here. You've got to just say no, that those people are a problem. We've got to deal with them. And here lately, the last 12 to 16 months in America, most of the time you hear any reference to drug policy in this country, the number one focus is making sure that we take the food stamps away from those people. <laughs> it's not a harm reduction model at all. It's a punitive threaten and scare you until you have no choice but to comply model, which doesn't work any better with these people than it does with your average two or three or four year old or five or six or seven year old or really 
eight or nine or 10 year old kid either. There's, there's got to be a better balance than that. What does this have to do with worship? Well, these are people who are not in our church. These are people who have not come to meet God as they are because the church has found a way wittingly or unwittingly to tell people that they're not welcome. You've got to clean yourself up first before you can come in these doors. Now, if you were to sit down and interview the pastor of any Protestant church in America or any priest you can find almost anywhere in the world, they would be quick to tell you how wrong that point of view is, how mistaken Greg is on inappropriate conversations, that that's not what the church is about and that's not how the church operates. Well, stop yourself right there. I know it's not what the church is about. I know it's not what the church is supposed to be about. But if it's not how the church operates... Where are the gay couples? Where are the IV drug users? Where are the homeless people? Where are the people who Jesus most wanted his apostles to go and reach? Where are the people that Jesus demonstrated spending his time with, even all the while being you know, derided by the religious leaders of his day as being some sort of ne'er-do-well because he was rubbing elbows with the wrong type of people? Why are the churches not filled with people? who are genuinely and honestly struggling with issues, that they've come into a moment of worship to seek God in the midst of. Well, maybe one of the reasons is that we tell them that they have no more place in the sanctuary than that drum set does. That they've got to clean themselves up. They've got to transform themselves into something more presentable, like a piano or an acoustic guitar. They've got to not be themselves if they're going to genuinely experience worship. And the problem with that is that if that attitude and mindset has any truth or validity to it whatsoever, guess what? Those churches are not worshiping. To me, I love to worship. I don't always do it in a church. I've done it in a barn. I've done it in a field. I've done it driving down the road in a car. I've done it, you know, almost any place I'm willing to worship any place I am. Because worship needs to be truly spontaneous, perhaps in some ways even genuinely dangerous, if it's going to be real. If your worship isn't raising challenging ideas and questions about theology, you are not worshiping. If the sins that are raised at the time of the raising of joys and concerns aren't more than just health problems and worries over upcoming travel or job issues... You know, it has to be real in a way that sometimes I think it's not. So a lot of people who I worship with in church are a little bit frightened of what happens if you just hand the microphone to a volunteer whose intent is to answer the question, what's the Lord doing in my life? They may share a story that, you know, is unfit for the sanctuary. And again, I raise the issue. If there's a story being shared by one believer with another set of believers around the question of their relationship with God and what God is doing in their lives that is unfit for the sanctuary, then that sanctuary is unfit to be called a house of worship. And that, I think, is one of the things that makes me just a little bit different. If I was worshiping my way, would there be you know, hard rock and rap music? You bet there would from time to time. There also might be classical and instrumental music where we're not singing. 
there would certainly be less examples of singing the same verse over and over and over again, or trucking out the same 17 hymns we always sing every year at this time of year. It would be different. It would be vital. And for some people, it might just scare the hell out of them. And I defy anyone who would call that a bad thing. Our different drummer this week is somebody that I imagine would agree with me on a lot of the points that I've raised. He is the former pastor of a church who is still a Christian, still attends church on a regular basis, but spends a lot of his time in you know Christian outreach and just in human-to-human fellowship online rather than inside any hallowed halls. He has a podcast called Take Him With You. And if you haven't heard of or uh, encountered Rick Moyer before, well, now is as good a time as any. Let me start by sharing the mission statement that at least uh, the last time I checked was up on the Take Him With You uh, website at www.takehimwithyou.com. This is Rick Moyer's words. I have a vision to communicate my faith in God in a real, genuine, and practical way. There are many reasons why people don't go to church, but suffice it to say, I care about them. Why? Because God cares about them. So who is talking to them? The TV, the radio, the megachurch preacher? They are only seeing this polished product, and they need to know a real, live, flesh-and-blood believer that lives their faith. Sometimes I get very upset when I see fellow believers acting like used car salesmen. It's like they are after people so much that can convert them and add a notch to their Bible. Yuck. People are not numbers. They are human beings with hopes, fears, and dreams. We cannot expect them to care about what we say until they know we really care about them. Are we interested in them? Or are we just wanting to get rewarded for doing good deed after good deed and telling them about Jesus? The number one use of the internet is pornography. Yeah, it's making more money than you could even imagine. This is where Greg would insert making money hand over fist as a joke, but Rick wouldn't, so I won't go there. People download pornography in the privacy of their home, put it on their mobile devices, hide it away on the hard drive, and then access it whenever they desire it. It occurred to me one day when I was talking to a friend that if bad things could be sent all around the world, Why couldn't I send a message of hope and healing out to the world? Well, the answer was yes, of course. Of course I can. So that is what my goal is with this podcast. It's not designed to reach the churchgoer. It's designed to reach the person who doesn't go to church and has no desire to. They can download an episode of the podcast, listen to it on their headphones, put it on their iPod or MP3 player, and yeah, here we go. Take it with them. Thus, Take Him With You was born, a way to communicate encouragement, my faith in Christ, and a way to heaven through everyday language and current events in entertainment. And I know, you might not like this, but my goal isn't to get them into church. It's to introduce them to Christ without forcing or shoving anything down their throat. I think Jesus is appealing and attractive if we live for him. Others will see him. It's the hypocrisy and judgment in the church that turns people off. Too many of us go to church before we come to Jesus anyway. That is why we have so many religious people 
and not enough people who have a relationship with God. I'm not against the church. My family and I go every Sunday, but I serve God all week, not just Sundays. As a person who explores their faith, they may or may not hook into a local church. I think as time goes on, the church as we know it is going to be redefined anyway, but that's a different topic. What I am looking for is people who are believers who will join together with me and help me reach people that they may not ever be able to. And that's part of the mission statement of Take Him With You. I encountered Take Him With You because a friend of mine online, who I've never met in person, who lives an ocean away, literally an ocean away, sent me a message on a message board and said, hey, you should check this out. I think you'll like it. So I did. And my first thought was, you know what, generally speaking, I've been very unhappy with Christian media in general. Now, Christian podcasts are, you know, probably better than Christian television, but probably not as good as Christian music, which if you've had a negative experience with Christian music, grade that on the curve. In other words, I don't add a Christian podcast to my menu without a great deal of vetting. So... I listened to the episode that he recommended, and I could totally understand why Anthony said, I think you'll like this, you should listen to it. But that's not enough for me. I listened to the two before, and I listened to the two after, and I went deeper into the archives, and I found episodes where I thought the topic was either interesting and should appeal to me, and therefore I could judge it based on how well it met my needs. Or episodes where, based on the title, I was a little bit wary. I thought, okay, here we go. There's going to be a catch here somewhere. We're going to hit that moment where, you know, he's going to hit a topic or he appears to be about to tell a story where I'm going to, I'm going to have my eye-rolling moment, right? And I went back and listened, and, and those passed the test. So I went back to the very beginning, and uh, with a little bit of exception along the way, every now and then, I'm up to date. I have listened to, from the beginning to now, most of the episodes of Take Him With You. And I found them to be very satisfying because if you're interested in the things that most people who are podcast listeners probably are, technology, TV, music, movies, science fiction, for example, uh, Rick and his family are, are into those things. And they don't, uh, they don't preach. There's a discussion, perhaps even a message from time to time, but that's not all there is to it. Uh, I feel like I've got a connection with what's going on in their world. Because Rick and his wife Amy share much more online than I ever will. If I were to say, well, is there a difference between what I'm doing and what Rick is doing? There's a gigantic difference. First off, I am trying to bring politics, religion, sexuality, rock and roll, drugs, culture together in a way that is absolutely, clear, clearly from the title, going to be inappropriate. I guarantee there will be episodes of inappropriate conversations that a lot of friends of mine in the church would be well advised just to say, I'm going to skip this one. I can tell by the topic you've got that it's not something that I'm going to enjoy. I understand that. It may be because of the political content. It may be because of the sexual content. We haven't gone very far down that road in terms of sexual content. And at some point, we'll get there. And so I think that's going to be a clear delineation between me and take him with you. But take him with you is a big piece of the menu of what it is that I do take in. And there are a couple of occasions where I've been so impressed, so provoked in a thoughtful way, 
by things that are covered on Take Him With You that I've linked them to the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. So if you scroll back far enough, you'll find not just links to the newest Inappropriate Conversations episodes, but to other things as well. And some of those are random stuff online, uh, YouTube clips, songs, articles, cartoons, but some of them are other podcasts. And when I put another podcast up on the Inappropriate Conversations page, that should tell you something right there. There's a connection. So where do Rick Moyer and I agree? Where do I feel Rick Moyer has really set a very fine standard by saying, hey, I can talk to people who don't know anything about Christianity. I can talk to people who have no interest in being part of the church. I can share with them who I am and my experience, and I'm going to listen to who they are and their experience. And if over time that connection raises more questions, I'm ready to answer them when they come up. But I'm not going to give you a big list of rules that you have to sign off on before I can tell you the big secret truths. And in this respect, Rick and I have a lot in common. I don't know how some of the people that I've encountered, both inside my church and online, would react to church being done the way I want it done to worship services where the message is being shared with people who have no idea what those stories are about and what they mean. To some folks, that would be uh, a terrible worship experience, very distracting, full of you know um, stuff that they shouldn't be having to go through and cover. They're looking for the same old thing, and the same old thing requires, to a certain degree, the same old crowd. Well, that's not what Take Him With You is all about. And you know what? I personally believe that's not what the gospel is about either. There have been many times lately where I've interacted with people that the world would tell me that I don't know. That if the only way you know somebody is if there's a face-to-face conversation and you know, a handshake of some sort, or if you see them with their own, with your own two eyes, then yeah, there's a great deal of people that I have um, a very, a very good ongoing conversation with, a lot of esteem, respect, and admiration for, a lot of warmth and affection for that I have, that I have not met, and that the big uh, discussion. In fact, I think it was Anthony himself, the person who turned me on to take him with you, also said, "Hey, you know what?" Um, I've been wrestling with this idea myself, you know, just two, three years ago. Um, is it appropriate to use the word friends for these people that you haven't met and probably never will meet, but with whom you've got a rapport? You know, if, if they tell a joke, you might know who they are if you didn't read their, if you didn't even read their name because you're, you're tapped into their personality. I was having an online conversation a couple of nights ago over the, uh, the movie website called Flick Chart. And what Flick Chart is is a, the program online will show you two different movies. You have the ability to say whether you haven't seen them or not until you line up two movies that you have seen both of them. And the game is you, you pick the one you think is best. There's no right or wrong. It's obviously your own personal opinion. But if you continue to make choices in the flick chart website, eventually it'll accumulate enough of an understanding of your taste that it'll begin to give you a fairly reasonable top 20 list that these are the films, at least the films that flick chart is aware of that you like the best. Now, people who know me very well would probably guess that this flick chart website has very little chance of getting to know me without several thousand clicks, because my two favorite movies of all time have not yet even popped up as an option. 
I've not been given the ability to vote for them or against them. How in the world is it going to come away with the understanding of what my all-time favorite film is if it doesn't seem to be aware that the film exists? Now, we're talking about an Academy Award-winning film, not, not for Best Picture, but you know, a multiple Academy Award-winning film. It's not a nobody. It just hasn't popped up on the menu. There's a, a geek film orientation with the John Hughes teen comedies and with gangster films and with sci-fi and, and horror movies. It hasn't hit the serious side where, where my movie passion truly lies. But I know friends well enough that if they were to go on Twitter or someplace and say, hey, I'm about to make a flick chart decision between this movie and this movie, I know these people well enough, I know what movie they're going to pick. And so far, I've been pretty good at it in terms of that. And if you have that kind of understanding with people, does it, is it meaningful to say that you don't know them well enough to call them friends? Well, I don't know. I have a very liberal understanding of the word friend. I've got a very tolerant, open genderless, locationless idea of what it means to call somebody a friend. And I've got an advantage when it comes to people like Rick Moyer in that if I've got a personal relationship with Jesus and he has a personal relationship with Jesus, and if we've got enough of a connection to know whether each other's heart's in the right place, even if we would draw different conclusions about certain things in music or popular culture or even politics, you've got a friend in Jesus. And one of the great things in my mind about being part of a church, part of a fellowship of faith, is that no matter what happens, friendship can always be restored if the two people simply meet him there. On the other hand, I did not send a quick email to my friend Rick and give him a heads up that he's about to be named a different drummer on inappropriate conversations. And I would doubt that he would have seen this coming. But I've had this topic on my menu for a while. Um, why I love to worship, whether in a church or not, um, whether in the quote-unquote right way or not, was on my mind for quite some time. And I, I thought a couple of times that I would hit it, maybe getting close to Christmas, in that season that Christians call Advent. And if I hit this idea on the first Sunday of Advent, I could explain kind of what Advent's all about. Because maybe in only the fourth or fifth episode of Inappropriate Conversations, I talked a little bit about what Lent is about leading up to Easter. And uh, it just hasn't worked out. Um, That crazy time of year between Thanksgiving and Christmas is sometimes hard for people like me to make recordings and to come into a topic like why I love to worship with the right mindset. When the stress level is very high at work and at home, uh, sometimes when you're not, you know, at church, you know, engaging in worship, it can be a little bit tricky to find the time to put yourself in that mindset and, and think about it. But... I finally got around to it. Here we are on a show I intend to release around Palm Sunday, um, calling out in a, subver- in a way that I'm sure is going to be a surprise, Rick Moyer is a different drummer. Hi there. This is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement And then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. 
If I fall in line with the schedule as I have planned, maybe next week I'll be hitting a religious topic as well, talking a little bit about the life of the heart and trying to put that out in time for Easter Sunday. After that, I'll get back into some of the personal storytelling, and maybe we'll round out into a bigger variety of topics as we get deeper and deeper into the summer. But for this week and for next week, it really was time for me to uh, to hit my personal spirituality and to engage in some conversation about what Rick Moyer would call being spiritual, but not religious. Thanks for listening.